Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. In the last decade, the transparency and openness of athletes like Kevin Love and Naomi Osaka has chipped away at the stigma of accessing mental health care. In prioritizing mental health care, athletes have found not only solace, but competitive advantages. On this episode, I interview Dr. Sam Manyar, a sports psychologist who has been at the forefront of the practice for over two decades. Dr. Manyar has worked with some of the most notable teams and athletes in youth, intercollegiate, and professional sport. In 2001, he was the sports psychologist for a Washington State football team that went 10-2 after going 4-7 the previous season. He credits then-football coach Mike Price for giving him access to work with athletes in a time when sports psychology was not the norm. The next season... Dr. Manyar found himself back in his home state of Ohio, working with the Ohio State Buckeyes. Following a 7-5 season in 2001, the Buckeyes started the 2002 season ranked number 13 in the AP preseason poll. At Ohio State, Dr. Manyar once again found a forward-thinking coach in Jim Tressel. Coach Tressel gave him unprecedented access to not only the football players, but the coaches and leadership council. That season, the Buckeyes went 14-0 in route to winning a national championship. In this episode, we uncover some of the mysteries surrounding sports psychology by discussing what does a sports psychologist do? How can you find a sports psychologist? And what will working with a sports psychologist look like? We discuss issues surrounding a lack of access to sports psychologists for many people, and in particular, members of certain communities, while highlighting several free resources that are widely available, along with tips for how to secure working with a sports psychologist for free or on a sliding scale basis. We examine the biggest issues facing college athletes and do a deep dive on the negative effects of social media. Dr. Manyar gives insights on how athletes can build their own identities away from sport to help combat some of these pitfalls. Finally, we talk about mindfulness. What is it? What is it not? And how can I practice it to examine the powerful competitive advantage that being present in the moment provides? Now, I need to let you know that in this episode, we discuss suicide as I recount the 2021 suicide death of one of my family members. We do this in hopes that you or someone you know who might be considering the same recognizes that there are resources out there to help you, whether they are resources that we discuss on this show or other resources that exist outside of this episode. I know that this episode is going to help a lot of people. I can't wait for you to listen to it. And if you find that it benefits you, I hope that you will share it with your friends, your teammates, and your community. So now it's time to listen to my conversation with Dr. Sam Manyar. 
Awesome. Well, welcome Dr. Manier to the Ruling Sports Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today. I look up to you greatly as a sports psychologist. We actually work together at the Alliance of American Football, so I'm excited to share with the listeners your knowledge. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. So we're going to hit it hard at the beginning. What is a piece of advice, quote, or mindset that has guided your life? So th- this this is a great this is a great question and one that I get asked a lot, you know, what's a favorite quote or something. And so uh, one of my favorite quotes is, is incorrectly attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, go figure a guy getting credit for something a woman said. Um, but uh, it was actually said by Muriel Strode in a poem. And she said, I will not follow where the path may lead, but I will go where there is no path and leave a trail. And, and that's something I had up on my wall in, as far back as I can remember in my bedroom growing up. And <clears throat> I always wanted to do things a little differently or, you know, there, there wasn't always a clear cut path to what I knew I wanted to be a sports psychologist, but there was not a clear way to get there. And there certainly wasn't an easy way to get there. And so I've really tried to live by that and um, forge my own path and leave a trail for those behind me. That's amazing. So when the quote was on your wall as a child, was it attributed to Emerson? It said anonymous, at least. <laughs> so, but if you look all over the internet, you will see that it is attributed to Emerson. And I did some fact checking, and it was a poem in the early 1900s that it came from. And yeah. I've definitely seen that quote. If I go through my Instagram account, it might also be a caption on one of my photos. And if it is, it's definitely attributed to Emerson. So I will go correct that. We have all already learned something here today. <laughs> this is, we can end the show right now. This is great. Um, I, I love that. I love that mindset. And we're going to talk next about your journey to becoming a sports psychologist. So for those who are unfamiliar with your work, mm-hmm. you are the founder of the Center for Peak Performance, and you have an incredible breadth of experience as a sports psychologist. You've worked full-time for teams like the Cleveland Browns, the Ohio State Buckeyes, the University of Akron, and many more. What mm-hmm. interested you in sports psychology? So growing up, I I was a multi-sport athlete, but my primary sport was running. So cross-country track, but I also played soccer and wrestled. And I remember picking up a book by Jerry Lynch called The Total Runner um, in, the, in the late 80s. And he talked about things like self-talk and visualization and shared stories of Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile barrier and how he visualized each lap split down to the 10th of a second. And, and I just was hooked. And, you know, at that time in the United States, not a lot of people were paying much attention to the mental side of sport you know, Eastern Europe, absolutely. They were, they were big uh, in, into sports psychology at the time, but not so much in the U.S. And as an athlete um, who looked for any legal competitive advantage I could find, you know, I just became really fascinated and I didn't see a lot of people doing it. And I said, wow, I, you know, this is something I feel like I'd like to do. I feel like I can make a difference on people's lives. And, and so it was really, it was really a marriage of my passion with sport and then my passion for helping people. And, and it just seemed to make total sense. That's amazing. Where did you grow up? 
I grew up in Northeast Ohio, um, said I would never come back and I'm back again. Uh, <laughs> and so, so born in Pittsburgh, raised, uh, in a suburb of Cleveland and, um, and then bounced, bounced around for, for schooling, obviously. So you talked about having to travel a trail or navigating a path to reach mm-hmm. this career. Let, let's talk about what it took to actually get your PhD and to become a sports psychologist. Yeah, so uh, four years of undergrad. So I went to Northwestern undergrad and um, majored in psychology. And then two years for my master's. My master's is in counseling, but I um, took some coursework and sort of minored in sports psychology. And I did that at the University of Montana. Um, And then I went to West Virginia University for my doctorate in counseling psychology. And they allowed me to, again, going with this theme of, you know, forging my own trail, they allowed me to, to create a, uh, a dual PhD in counseling psych and sports psychology. So they had both programs, but um, they hadn't really ever, there's one other person with me that was trying to kind of marry the two into a combined PhD. Uh, so I did that. And then in psychology, um, before you can graduate, you have to go on a one-year residency. And it's similar to the med school um, uh, residency matching program. You, you know, a computer algorithm kicks out who you match with, and that's where you go. And so uh, that's a one-year-long residency. Then you get your PhD. And then in psychology, you also then either need to work under somebody for a year or do a postdoctoral fellowship to gain supervised hours. I chose to do a postdoctoral fellowship at Ohio State um, in their sports medicine department and uh, worked with athletics there. And so also in my internship, I was at Washington State University and I also worked with the athletics department there. So everywhere I went, I was fortunate enough to have experience working with the college athletic department where I was, Montana, West Virginia, Washington State, and then Ohio State. Once I finally became licensed and my postdoc was over, uh, Ohio State chose to disband the postdoc and hire me. It was just fortuitous timing for me. The football team won a national championship that year. And so I think the coaches on multiple teams were, were tired of a revolving door of a new fellow every year coming in. And they said, well, look, you know, this seems to be working. Can we just keep Sam? So I stayed on at Ohio State for five years uh, before kind of moving on to, to some other things. What year was that national championship? 2002. Awesome. Wow. What, yeah, what a yeah. time. So yeah. what role did sports psychology play in that team putting on the performance that it did and winning a national championship? Really? It's really hard to measure. And I always tell other people, if you're going to take credit for all the successes that your teams have had, you also have to take credit for all the failures your teams had too. So, so, um, I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was a, a percentage who knows, but, but I will tell you coach Trestle, um, was very open and I had just come from Washington state and that team had gone four and seven the year before and coach price was at Washington state. And he just, to his credit, believed that the team was capable of more. They were picked to come in dead last in the pac 10 that year. Um, and he gave me access to the team, uh, very progressive in 2001 to, to do this for with an intern, no less. Right. And, and I was able to meet with the team weekly. I was able to be on the sidelines for some games uh, in the locker room. With the, I met with the coaches weekly, and then I met with the leadership council weekly. 
And, you know, we worked on various things, team building and, and, and sports psychology topics. And that team went 10 and two that year. And so I, again, I don't take much credit for that at all. I think it was, you know, just a, a combination. It was a good a tipping point in a good direction. And But because of that, when I moved on to Ohio State, Coach Price called Coach Trussell and said, hey, this guy's coming there and he really helped us. You know, you might want to consider letting him work with the team. And so I went in and met Coach Trussell and he said, can you guarantee me 10 wins this year? Uh, because that's what Washington State had done. And I said, no, coach, I cannot guarantee you that. Uh, well, good thing I didn't because they went 14-0 that year. Um, wow. You know, and so they, they, they went 14-0, beat Miami in the national championship in the Fiesta Bowl. And, and again, it was just fortuitous timing. Uh, coach Trussell asked the seniors, what's missing? What do, you, what do we not have access to? What do you need to be successful? And four or five of the seniors said, the mental side of the game, sports psychology. We don't have access to a sports psychologist. I literally got goosebumps as you were speaking because we're not talking about two weeks ago. We're recording this in 2022. We're speaking about 20 years ago when there was yeah. a significant stigma around mental health, particularly with men, particularly mm -hmm. with athletes, where you had to have this machismo, I'm tougher than thou attitude. And mm -hmm leadership is leadership and leaders are people who think outside of the box, who go beyond the norms to find solutions. And so it's incredible that coaches Price and Trestle realize the benefit of developing the mental side of the game. So thank you for sharing that story. That's sure. incredible. Hey everyone. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Ruling Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. What does a sports psychologist do? So they let you in, you're meeting with all of these people, right. you get the green light. What are you doing when you're there? Yeah, that, that's probably the most common question I get asked. Um, unfortunately, the, the field has, the, the profession's done a pretty poor job of regulating it. And so you have a lot of people who call themselves sports psychologists who might be former athletes or former coaches um, who don't really have the training. So the term psychologists in any derivative is protected by state law. In order to call yourself psycho have psychologist in your title, you must have passed the state uh, licensure exam uh, in the state that you're practicing. In almost all states requires a PhD in counseling or clinical psychology. There's some exceptions, but so a sports psychologist then is a licensed psychologist, so what you would go to any psychologist for, but who specializes in working with the athletic population. So they, you know, they understand the culture of athletics. And not only do they tend to work with the clinical side, the mental health side, they also work on the performance side. And so it could be um, performance anxiety, confidence, uh, resilience and letting go of mistakes could be how to concentrate and focus a little bit better. And so the work I do either with individuals or teams kind of spans anything from clinical depression to, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm I've hit a, a ceiling in my performance, but I know that I'm capable of so much more and I don't know what's getting in the way. And it feels like it's something going on between my two ears you know, I've tried the physical and I've tried drills and I've tried all those things, but there's, I want to reach my potential. And so anything, and a lot of times 
one impacts the other. As our performance goes down, our, our life satisfaction goes down with it. And as our personal life is out of order, it's really hard to separate that and then perform well on the field. And so I made the conscious decision to be trained in both psychology and sports psychology so that I could treat the entire person. Um, someone who's just trained in sports psychology really is only supposed to stay in the performance side. And then if it gets clinical, they're supposed to refer. And then someone who's just trained in psychology who doesn't have the sports psychology training is supposed to stay in the clinical lane and not go down the performance, right? We now know the difference between a psychologist versus a sports psychologist. We know that the area isn't very well regulated. If I'm an individual looking for this type of help and I can't hire you, mm -hmm. how, how do I find someone who's legit? There are some directories and databases out there. The problem is none of them will be comprehensive because most of them require paying to be to be a part part of whatever that is right a paid database that is out there is called psychology today and 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 for for any you know whether you're you're looking for a sports psychologist or not you know you can go in there and choose what you're looking for and the gender and your zip code and insurance and all that sort of thing and it'll kick out people who have paid to be part of that so that's one way the american psychological association has a directory the u.s olympic uh, committee has a directory of providers as well. Other professional sports organizations are starting to put together their own directories, the NFL and the NBA, and none of them are perfect for a multitude of reasons because they all require uh, some very specific things, which then excludes certain people too, right? So, um, you know, so for example, um, there is a sports psych organization called ASP, the Association uh, for Applied Sports Psychology, and they have a CMPC certificate. Um, you can get that with a master's degree and not be a psychologist. If you have somebody who is a licensed psychologist and has their CMPC, I think that's that's pretty that's that's something good to look for. But you know, for me, I would say you know look for somebody who is a licensed clinician, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a PhD psychologist. It could be a master's counselor. It could be a social worker, but then somebody who has extensive experience in working with athletes as well. Um, yet they have to really understand the culture of athletics. Those are great points. I, I want to come back to the access side of things. Psychology today is, I think, a great free resource because beyond being able to search for a provider in your area, there's also free articles about mm -hmm. different issues that you might be facing. I went to therapy for the first time this summer. Um, I think COVID was hard on us and it gave us a lot of time to think about everything in our life and kind of bring some things up to the surface that maybe before you kept yourself busy to ignore. And one thing that I would say from my experience is finding a therapist or a psychologist is almost like dating in a sense where the first person might not be the right fit for you. And oftentimes you might throw your hands up and say, well, that didn't work. I didn't get what I was here for. We didn't click. We didn't mesh. You can't quit. You have to keep moving forward to find that person who you work well with. I, I don't know. Am I right or wrong there? Well, first of all, it's your experience. So I, you, <laughs> you can't be wrong, right? That's your experience. But that being said, I agree with you. Um, finding a therapist is hard. 
And I have also been uh, in therapy myself. I think everybody should. And uh, unfortunately, not everybody has access. And we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it is a f- it's about fit. And, and it's not that there are bad therapists out there, but there may be bad therapists for you. And um, so some of it is you may not even know what you're looking for until you've had the bad experience, just like dating, right? Maybe you went for the all looks and no brain. And you're like, oh, I didn't realize how important yeah. having, having intelligence Damn. is, right? You what know? are we doing here? Uh, Being a little personal. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think I think dating is a great metaphor for, for therapy. And uh, to take it a step further, when you were talking, it made me think of the show, This Is Us, where the dad was telling his daughter that dating is like, I don't know if they're making waffles or pancakes, but he's like, you always throw away the first one, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's kind of like dating, right? Just throw out that first one. How does um meeting with a sports psychologist work? So the, the first session, probably quite similar to a first session in, in, in therapy in that I'm, I'm collecting intake information i'm trying to paint a picture of the person i want to certainly we'll talk about whatever it is they're there for uh maybe they're in a hitting slump uh maybe their confidence is down uh maybe they've lost motivation to perform you know at their sport or we you know whatever it might be but um but i want to put that in the context of the, who the person is i want to understand their culture and their family and you know has this happened before and if so what helped you what didn't help you because i don't want to redo some, you know, retry something that didn't work in the past. Conversely, if something did help, let's let's leverage that, right? I want to understand what medications they might be taking. What's their injury history? Have they worked with a psychologist or a sports psychologist before? Um, So it's a lot of questions. We're setting goals for, hey, you know, what is, what are you hoping to accomplish by working with me? How do we measure that? What does it look like so that we know when you've hit the goal so that we can, that's kind of our guiding light. And if we start to stray from that, it kind of keeps us focused. Then I think it becomes a little bit different because it's very um, solution focused. And there is a type of therapy that is called solution focused therapy. But, um, you know, we, we, we're diving into um, a very specific thing at that point, right? So let's say it's um, pregame jitters. Right. And, and to the point where it's affecting performance. So in that case, we're going to very we're going to focus on that specific thing. And and my work then is around first developing insight. Like when when does this happen? Why is this happening? What's this about? Um, when has this happened and not happened? What's helped you? What hasn't helped you? Then we kind of move into phase two and that's self-monitoring. So it's learning to recognize when I'm starting to get anxious. What does that feel like in my body? What does that feel like in my thoughts? How can I recognize it earlier? Um, and then we jump into the the techniques, the interventions, you know, whether it might be deep breathing or it might be meditation, or it might be focusing on the controllables and the process as opposed to the outcome. But it could also be something clinical that's going on, right? And so it could be something that's going on off the field. I, I'm feeling this immense pressure from so-and-so or, you know, coming out here reminds me of this coach who sexually assaulted me, or, you know, I mean, it could be a wide variety of things that could be contributing to what's going on. So I think it's really important though. We do kind of jump down a rabbit hole. It's really important to understand the, the broad picture of what's going on 
um, and not just make assumptions. It, it is similar to therapy when I'm doing the performance stuff, but it's also a little bit different. And then I also do therapy with athletes. And that probably looks very similar to what anybody would experience. The only difference is, you know, they're an athlete and I understand athletics and I've worked in it for 20 years. And, um, and, and, and so, uh, but, but my, my, every therapist is a little bit different. My focus tends to be more on leveraging strengths instead of focusing on why you're sad today. Hey, you're a little bit happier today than you were last week. What's that about? What got you from a three to a five? Let's talk a little bit about that. Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the Ruling Sports Newsletter. The Ruling Sports Newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, business insights, and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. You work with a wide spectrum of athletes from the youth level to the highest levels of professionalism. From your work recently, what is the biggest issue that college athletes are dealing with from a sports psychology perspective? Yeah, if I, if I were to split them into the performance versus the clinical bucket, and I, I hate doing that because I think, like I said earlier, one impacts the other, but stress is the first thing that pops in my head. And, you know, and, and then symptoms related to that, like poor sleep, too much social media, you know, did the pandemic play a role in that? Absolutely. But that's not all of it either. You're starting to hear more about student athletes uh, committing suicide. It, it has been happening for quite a while. It's just, it's finally getting the attention it deserves. But then, you know, if you're talking about sport performance, it's really, it's confidence and it's anxiety. Those are the two big things. When I think about athletic performance challenges that I work with confidence and anxiety, but if I were just generally saying, I'd say it's stress. What's causing the stress. I think it's a, uh, it's a perfect storm of a lot of things. Uh, and again, this is just a hypothesis, but I th- so uh, you've got the pandemic, you have social media distractions. We know that the more distracted you are, the more depressed and anxious you will become, which is why mindfulness is so effective because it's helping you focus on what you're doing right now. But, but so I think we're, we're distracted. I think we are stressed because of the pandemic that knocked us out of our routines. It took away some, some social connections. I think uh, athletes are very available to the public because of social media and other, other, um, People can harass you and tell you because you dropped that touchdown pass that would have won the game that, you know, you should, you're terrible and and worse. Intensive parenting is a big part of that. I think sports specialization is a huge part of that. I think the training demands have gone up immensely. You know, what collegiate athletes are doing now for training is probably what pro athletes were doing 10 or 20 years ago. And, and, you know, is it, the level has gone up. And so what high school athletes are doing is what college athletes used to be doing. And so I think the, the um, training demands have gone up, you know, and then we sacrifice things like sleep and recovery and balance. But as the training demands have gone up, the coping skills have not gone up 
uh, in concert with that. So, but I think that's the beginnings of why. And, and I think people are starting to look at that and try to figure out what we can do. Where do we go? Where do we go from there? Let's talk about social media. Mm-hmm. I love social media. I would not have my career and my network, but for social media. But the older I've become and the more I work with Gen Z people, so I'm a college professor, I'm scared for them. And I don't think our society is ringing enough bells about the harmful effects and consequences of social media. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can go onto one of many platforms and see what everyone else around the world is doing. And so there's a comparison effect and a fear that I'm not measuring up, I'm not doing enough. How do we manage the stressors that social media can put on it? Yeah. So one thing you said is you're seeing what what other people are doing. And a, a slight addition to that is you're seeing what they want you to think that that they're doing, right? And 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 so that's a piece that I don't know that everybody fully comprehends. That that one picture on Instagram. That person may have taken 200 photos, no joke, and found the one uh, that, and by the way, there's a great TED talk that talks about this, uh, Victoria Garrick from USC, a former student athlete. If if your listeners have never, um, never watched that TED talk, it is uh, just very visceral uh, reaction to just listening to, and she talks about the amount of pictures they took before they found the one where they, she felt like she was just cute enough but it was all fake. Like she was very sad that day. And, and so, so you see what, and then if, if you've read the book, um, what made Maddie run, um, about, uh, uh, runner at Penn who, uh, committed suicide and she too was using Instagram to portray this image of her, which wasn't reality. It wasn't how she truly felt. You know, I think part of it is just understanding that, that that's not real. They're showing you what they want you to see, understanding that, uh, you know, every like is a little hit of dopamine. I mean, we know this, um, you know, it's like a drug and like with other drugs, you need to limit, you know, in, in moderation, right? You know, I'm not saying take it away because you're right. There are, there are many benefits to social media and I think we have to limit and we need to set boundaries and we have to fully understand that that's not real life. What you're seeing in the pictures we need to stay connected and grounded with the real world too. And, and so I think the only way to do that, I think, is, is really to, to limit our exposure and to set some, set some guardrails up in terms of how much time I'm going to spend on this. Mindfulness, I think, is a critical tool for navigating this space. I've, over this summer, have worked on being more mindful on how I'm engaging with my smartphone because I've realized it's become essentially a nervous habit where whenever I have a couple of seconds, so I'm stopped at a red light or I'm walking somewhere and I'm waiting for the light to turn, instead of just peacefully enjoying that moment and giving my brain a rest, I'm reaching for the smartphone like how a smoker would reach for a cigarette. Mm-hmm. My hand yep. is going to that thing. So I, I think mindfulness is just a really critical tool. But what do you also think about helping people establish their identities? Because one thing I worry about with young people 
is they're looking to these people on Instagram who, to your point, just have such unrealistic standards of beauty or their presence that you begin thinking, well, I'm not enough. I don't measure up. How can we help athletes build identities? Yeah. And, and, and potentially an identity outside of sport too. Right. Um, because at some point you'll have to hang up the cleats um, and, and it's okay to have an, a sports identity, but, or, and I should say, you also need to have, you know, work on another identity. So look, for me, it's about, it's a balance of, you have to find something that you do well and, and, and leverage that, you know, it's, you know, what are your strengths and, and how can I, how can I utilize those every day? And I'm not all about just focusing on strengths. I think in order to grow and develop, we also need to work on closing some gaps too. But if it's not, if I'm not utilizing my strengths as a starting point, then where's my motivation to do that? Right. And so I think part of that identity has to come from, Hey, helping the athlete or whoever this is, uh, figure out what do you do well outside of your sport or what do you do well in your sport that translates outside of your sport? So I want to go back to something we touched upon earlier, which is access. And there's a lot of problems. We're both in the United States. So I'm going to approach this from an American standpoint. There's a lot of issues with our healthcare system in the United States. And there's certain communities that don't have great access to psychologists and even more specifically sports psychologists. Mm -hmm. If I'm a person in one of those communities, or for some reason, I do not have access to the care that I need, are there any free or more accessible services or strategies that I can employ? So believe it or not, there are, uh, not as much as there should be, but, but, uh, here are a couple of resources, uh, for your listeners. First of all, the, the 988 hotline that just came out. Um, so uh, think of 911, but for a, a mental health crisis, um, anyone can dial 988 and get access to somebody to help them in a crisis situation. Uh, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, has a hotline uh, for those who do not have insurance. Um, and that number is one 800 950-6264. And you can find them on the web at uh, nami.org. Uh, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Assistance, um, also has a uh, helpline that is uh, 1-800-662-HELP. And it's S-A-M-H-S-A, uh, I believe, um, if, you, if you're trying to do a... Um, uh, search online. And then the last thing to think, um, you know, most therapists will have one or two slots that are kind of pro bono and, or will offer a sliding scale, uh, for, for those who maybe don't have the resources, don't have the insurance or don't have the income. And so always ask if they have a sliding scale, um, and, or if, um, they have any pro bono slots. That is awesome. I mean, that that is a wealth of knowledge that you just provided. And I love the insight, which I didn't know about pro bono or sliding scale opportunities. And so perhaps if you find yourself in that situation, one positive thing to come out of the pandemic, and I understand that not everyone has the same internet and broadband access as others, 
But now a lot of psychologists are doing virtual appointments. Mm-hmm. So perhaps go to a resource like Psychology Today, plug in what you're looking for, get a list of individuals. They might be in your neighborhood. If they're not in your neighborhood on Psychology Today, there should be an option to search for virtual appointments. Mm-hmm. Go through those people and call and see if they will work with your financial situations. And if they tell you no, ask them if they can refer you to someone in their own network or who they know who can help you. That that is so powerful. That's such a gem of knowledge. And then those Mm -hmm. hotlines that you spoke about, those are resources that you can call right now. And you can talk to a live human being once the phone is picked up. So if you ever especially find yourself in a crisis situation where you feel like there is nobody on this planet or nobody in your life who can talk to you, the first thing you need to recognize in that moment is your brain's lying to you. There's 7 billion people on this planet. There is at least one other person here. And it might be someone you don't know yet. It could be someone on this hotline who believes in you and cares about you and wants you to continue living and making this world a better place. So if you find yourself in that situation, pick up the phone, call, and you can immediately be put in touch with someone who is trained to walk you through the situation you find yourself in. Um, not, not only that, they'll also refer you to uh, a clinician who will work with you uh, even though you don't have the the insurance. And, and so um, even take it a step further, but, but yes, I agree. If there's anybody listening who is struggling and feels like they're alone and nobody gets it and there's, there's no hope, um, believe me, I, I, there, there is, and there are people out there who want to help. I, I had a family member who had a lot of resources commit suicide in November, 2021. And I, I've had several family members commit suicide. And when you're living on the other side of that decision, the people who are left here on this earth are left asking, what could I have done? I had no idea. I wish I could have helped you. So please never feel like people don't care that you might be surprised (laughs) who actually cares. And maybe it's not someone that you're talking to on a daily basis, but you don't know whose lives you're impacting. And so please use these resources that we're laying out to provide just just a safe spot for yourself in that moment. Let's go back to mindfulness. Is there a mindfulness technique or tip that you can offer the listeners? Like visualization, I think people have different preferences. Some like it to be more guided. I was like that as an athlete when I went through visualization. I didn't like the free form. I needed somebody to kind of talk me through what was going on. It's a matter of preference. Um, you know, so you can do certainly do mindfulness on your own. You can do it guided. You can do it very specific. Really what mindfulness is all about is it's about being aware right now of what's going on. What's going on with my body? Uh, I'm sitting in a chair right now. So being mindful would be how my legs are feeling and how my butt feels sitting on the chair and the sensation of my toes on the carpet, being aware of our breathing. It's being aware of our thoughts. It's it's not a, I think a lot of people see it as your mind being blank. No, it's just being hyper-focused on 
the present. You mentioned that nervous habit of picking up the phone. I find myself having my phone in my hand and watching television at the same time. Like, oh my goodness, like, because TV is not entertaining enough that I also have to have my phone. Talk about distracted. I am not mindfully present in either of those things. And we research is quite clear that taking a break, a rest with your phone is not resting your brain. Um, so you're not getting the restorative effects you need. And so really mindfulness, is, it's about unplugging and just being focused. If you're washing the dishes, you can mindfully wash the dishes by just feeling the sensation of the suds and the water on your fingers and hearing the squeak of the sponge on the dishes. That's mindfulness. I would say anybody who's just starting out, start with 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and then kind of build your way up from there. Any any program is going to start you small anyways and kind of kind of build up. I'd love to just take some of the, the stigma and, and kind of the, the mystique of mindfulness away for your listeners. Really, it's just about being present um, in, in what's going on and not just distracted and just fully being present in what you're doing. And think about all the times we're multitasking throughout the day. We feel like we have to multitask all the time and we pay the price for that. We pay a huge <laughs> price. I, I started ruling sports initially in 2011 and it was so quick and I could get so many things done and I had such great ideas. I'm infinitely smarter today, 11 years later than I was then, but I notice a change in my brain and my thinking and my ability to focus. And for me, I blame it on social media and the smartphone because my brain is always tied to another place. So mindfulness, if you can work on it and you can practice it. And for me, what my practice entails is meditation. I go to meditation at least two times a week. Um, I live in LA, so meditation's kind of woo-woo out here, which I know yeah. isn't for everyone, but I go to guided meditations. And I also go to something called a sound bath, which we'll talk about on a later episode, but it is awesome. And that has really allowed me to gain greater awareness of my habits and how I'm showing up into different moments. But for an athlete in particular, I think the ability to be mindful and the ability to focus, that's an incredible competitive advantage because you have to be on every second of whatever sport you're competing in. And if your brain is thinking about a test, your significant other, something that you're worried about, your competitor is, is gaining the advantage. For sure. For sure. Or if you're still thinking about the, the error you just made or the mistake you made or the bad shot you just had, where are you? You're in the past. You're not in the present, right? And Or if you're thinking about, oh, if this keeps going, this is going to happen in the future. Well, now you're in the future. And so being able to stay in the present is a huge competitive advantage. So we're coming to the end of our time here. Are there any books that you find yourself consistently referring to your clients? Uh, I, I would say the book that I probably refer people to the most is, is Mindset by, by Carol Dweck. It's a classic. Uh, it's a very easy read. It has, she talks about sport in there. She talks about, she talks about business in there and that, you know, the growth versus fixed mindset, which is becoming very center for a lot of people in terms in schools. Now you're, you're hearing about growth mindset. And somebody once told me when it comes to like self-help books, just 
just walk, walk. Well, you can't do that much because there's not a lot of bookstores anymore, but it used to be, you just walk down the aisle and whenever one kind of speaks to you and looks appealing or sounds good, that's the one for you. Unless you're talking self-published things, there's not, somebody thought it was a good idea enough to publish it, right? So um, there, there aren't a lot of terrible books that you self-published aside. So if you go on Amazon, do some searches and, you know, read the reviews and, you know, a lot of it is borrowing liberally from others and, and, and kind of recycling some of the same content, but there's just such a broad range of things. And so I hate to just recommend one thing, but those are great resources. This has been such an incredible, fascinating conversation for me. It went by really quickly. So I thank you so much for your time. How can listeners keep in touch with you or stay up to date on what you're working on? You can follow, I'm on social media. The one I'm most active on is Twitter. Um, and it's at Sam underscore Maniar, M-A-N-I-A-R. Um, I do have a presence uh, on Facebook and Instagram, Center for Peak Performance. Um, or you can go to my website. It's www.c4pp.org. So that's the letter C, the number four, pp.org. And I do have a ton of free um, resources, articles, podcasts, there will be a link to this podcast when, when it comes out, that'll be on there as well. And so tons of free, nothing is behind a paywall. Um, so if there's something that, you know, can be helpful by all means, uh, I, I love your feedback and, and certainly all my contact info is on my website as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all that you've done in your career to support athletes and human beings to live their best life. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show and join us next time.